Welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cotchell, the CEO of Law in Sport. I hope you're doing well and thanks so much for tuning in. Our special guest today is Ben Rutherford. He is a senior director legal at the ITIA, which is the International Tennis Integrity Agency. He's a barrister and solicitor with over 12 years experience at top tier firms and in-house where he previously worked for World Rugby, uh, leading their integrity unit. He's now heading the ITIA's new legal department and he has a significant amount of experience across sports law, in particular areas of corruption or integrity more broadly, but corruption, betting, anti-doping, governance, disciplinary and athlete education. Um, He's also worked on committees and projects with the IOC, WADA, the UN and Interpol on matters relating to anti-doping and corruption in sport. In this podcast, Ben talks to us about his career, how he started out, what he's learned over his extensive period working in integrity in sport, and what he's doing now and what he thinks the future holds for sport and the work that he's doing and how sport can move forward, uh, particularly with these new integrity units being established across a number of organisations and sports. So before we get into it, I'd just like to thank you for tuning in. And remember, for all the latest legal issues and developments, go to lawandsport.com. And I hope, other than that, I hope you enjoy the show. So Ben, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, you've recently, well, I'll say recently, uh, relatively recently, given that you've been working in the sports sector for somewhere in the region of, sort of 12 years now in various different roles. Um, you've recently joined the International Tennis Integrity Agency. Um, can you tell us about your role and why you decided to join? Why does it excite you? Thanks, Sean. Great to be on and thanks so much for having me. Um, Yes, I've been with uh, International Tennis Integrity Agency now as the Senior Director Legal for almost a year, 11 months um, uh, at the end of this month. Um, The ITA is the, uh, in some respects, the successor body to what was the Tennis Integrity Unit. um, uh, And then the Tennis Integrity Unit is well known within sport for being at the forefront of fighting corruption uh, in, in sport and particularly in tennis. Um, following the IRP, the seven governing bodies of tennis decided to. So that's the independent. Uh, the independent. In, sorry, indeed. Yeah, the in, exactly, exactly. Right. <laughs> sorry for my use of acronyms. Um, <laughs> and following that review, the the seven governing bodies of tennis, so the four Grand Slams, the ITF, uh, and the two uh, professional tours, WTA and ATP, um, decided to uh, effectively turn the tennis integrity unit into a fully independent agency uh, with its own uh, majority independent board um, chaired by Jenny Price uh, and um, uh, and the ITAA as it is now was was fully incorporated uh, in January of this year with responsibility for anti-corruption within tennis and as of next year uh, responsibility for anti-doping. So for me having spent 11 years at World Rugby, 11 fantastic years, great sport um, and having led their integrity program Uh, It was sort of a natural step, and tennis was one of the sports that I had um, always looked to and even liaised with uh, at the point of setting up rugby's integrity program to to sort of gain some best practice insights. So when I was contacted about the the establishment of a a new legal team for the new ITAA, it was a really exciting opportunity and and, uh, was very happy to to come across, albeit um, with mixed emotions, leaving rugby. But uh, but the ITAA is a great place to work, and and I, I haven't looked back. And how many people are in the team? We're a relatively small legal team, um, although if you think that our focus is sort of specifically on anti-corruption and shortly anti-doping, pretty well resourced actually in that respect. So there's, there are four of us um, in total within the, within the agency um, and, uh, and, it, and we you know, work really closely with uh, an investigative team of 12, or shortly to be 12, uh, and we also have an intel team uh, and, and of course an education team. So... Um, it's one of the attractions really for me of of tennis is that tennis has you know, really takes this area seriously and has has that sort of level of staff is uh, focused on these regulatory issues is not something that that all sports are able to do so um, you know something that puts tennis in a really good position in in this respect I remember um, I think it was um, you might I'm not sure if you were there um, it was a I think it was an event that I think it was credit in the right people stats perform an IBM 
sort of put on together. I think they've done with Star Lizard. Is it Standard Lizard? Star Lizard? The Star Lizard. Star Lizard. Um, and they did, did they sort of probably God knows how many years ago. I've lost two years with, COVID, with the COVID, but maybe two or three years ago. And and there was the head of education uh, for the what was the unit at the time. And they were. He, I think he was new, and he was brilliant in terms of actually going look we need to because you know you probably saw this over your experience there was all this talk about we need to educate but all too often it was just uh you know, information dissemination um how is that um yeah how has that sort of evolved now and, and what is that looking like i think that's quite when i was looking obviously at the uh, at the, uh, the agency's website that's something that's quite prominent it's like i think it's one of the first pillars i think you call it yeah, it, it is. I mean, education is absolutely key. And this was very much the same um, in my previous role in rugby. So we're, we're really fortunate to have a three person education team, two of whom have played tennis at a, at a pretty high level as well. So really understand um, what players in particular, but also coaches and others who are, who are covered by the TACP and TADP uh, need to know and how we can deliver it to them. So there's a lot of work going on at the moment to try to find all of those synergies between the anti-corruption education and the anti-doping education to try to deliver it um, in the most succinct but impactful way for the different uh, cohorts within the sport. And that includes not just um, you know, those different roles like players and, um, and you know, personal physicians and coaches and agents and so forth, but also players at different stages of their, their career. The juniors need education maybe in a slightly different way um, to senior players, to players at the very top of the game. Um, and that's something that having an in-house education team who are specifically focused on that and working you know, almost every day, um, liaising with the, the seven governing bodies in terms of how we can um, get to those players at the, in the best way, at the earliest way, um, and ensure that they're kind of um, the, the, um, the matrix around the players, so their support personnel, their families and so forth are also part of that story. Um, to take them on that on that integrity journey and, and do that in the best possible ways. So there's a lot of work going on. It's a really interesting time actually with with anti-doping coming across and a great opportunity for us to to try to find those synergies. So there's there's a lot going on in that space at the moment. I look I look forward to that because you know my my one of my big as you know from coming to the conference and so forth. One of the big things that you know talking to to John Taylor and uh, Brett Clothier and others is this. You know, the, you know, finding those synergies within these integrity functions, rather than just have, you know, and probably this, let me ask you this question: How have you seen the sector evolve? Obviously, you've been at World Rugby, who, uh, if it's fair to say, were a kind of a lower risk sport. But the, you know, how we got to know each other was because you were very, I think, very forward thinking and proactive. We're trying to bring various people together in the sector, you know, with the conference that you organised when you were there, you know, which was the whole purpose. We had a long conversation about this. The whole purpose was actually like, let's share best practice, let's share different techniques, um, different methodologies. How have you seen that evolved, given that, you know, when was it you started at, in World Rugby? Was it 10 years ago or? Uh, 2010, 2010, January 2010, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you're dead right. It's changed a lot. I think sports like probably tennis, cricket, some others, football and others had dealt with these issues in the past and had been seeing them with sports that had, had attracted gambling. Um, just specifically speaking about anti-corruption for a moment, obviously anti-doping is different and has affected all sports in different ways for different periods of time. Um, but anti-corruption has probably been a bigger issue and something that those sports have had more experience of dealing with. It seems to me though, over the last 10 years or so, you know, the IOC have really picked up the reins on this and, and, and helped sports who haven't had as much experience um, get up to speed and get tooled up with the right um, knowledge and access and resources that they need. And that's that's a big difference because I think a lot of sports, um, and rugby was one of them, say back in 2010, we had rules around anti-corruption, but we, we hadn't really tested them and they probably weren't as... Um, as elaborate as they needed to be. We didn't probably have all of the powers we needed to have and we certainly didn't have um, the resources internally, the understanding of betting and so forth. And that was a, um, a job that we had to do to get up to speed. And we were kind of lucky in the rugby sense that we were able to, to lean on sports like tennis who had all this great expertise and had had some experience and had had their rules tested at CAS, say, for example, as well, and be able to borrow some of that best practice in, in rugby. So it's interesting now, 10 years later, looking back and seeing that you know, tennis has obviously moved on and it's now got this independent agency. Um, other sports like athletics are, are doing similar types of things, biathlon as well. Um, but there are generally even the sports that haven't taken those steps um, 
they have an understanding of this now, you know, largely through the IOC, not exclusively, but the IOC has done some great work in this area as well to, to, to really make sure that all the sports, because all sports now are gambled on to a larger or, or, or lesser extent, they are all potentially vulnerable. Um, and so all sports really need to be aware of this issue. And it seems to me there's been a lot of work done in that in that area over the last 10 years, which is just really good to see the, 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 the sector's grown immensely and, and, um, and sports the benefit of it. And, and would you say then when you first got in, because a friend of ours, uh, um, uh, Kevin Carpenter, yeah, when he first got involved with law in sport, he was focusing on match fixing at the time. Uh, no one really cared. <laughs> there's, well, there's very few people really cared about it. Thought, oh, there's a lovely niche area. Um, of sport and it was kind of this afterthought almost even though there had been historical cases uh, and we've seen obviously as you're saying the IOC and others have become more widely recognised what were some of the I guess what were some of the challenges that you saw first of all when you're at World Rugby and then has that enabled you now has it given you learning that you could take away from that have you learnt anything that there's in your current role now that you can as you're merging these two spheres that you can sort of bring in to 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 make things or to get better stakeholder buy-in yeah it's a good question i think um probably at world rugby i was really lucky that although it was a sport that hadn't had integrity challenges of this type before it already had a really strong anti-doping program um and a really good understanding of the importance of integrity to the brand, much like tennis does. It's, it's why tennis has put these resources in to have the ITIA and, and make sure the sport is protected. And, and the... Um, so in, in rugby, even though we hadn't had those challenges, there was there was immediate buy-in to, to do this best practice work, did a lot of work with the Players Association to get them to understand not having you know, much, much sort of understanding, certainly from their own player membership of what these challenges were, how gambling could impact rugby, how gambling could impact players as well, and getting them across the line to agree to new rules and new powers and so forth. And, um, and that was something that was really beneficial. And I think and that was probably just before, although the IOC were already really active in this area, they hadn't quite um, launched the, the IOC code, which is now... Um, in place and all the different IFs have adopted it. We, we had our rules at a similar time, but I was able to sort of borrow sections or use some best practice from cricket's rules and tennis's rules and, and make sure we had provisions that had been tested before the CAS and, and upheld. So I think that was that was a kind of a really good basis and being in a sport that took that very seriously, I'm not saying others don't, of course, but I can only speak for, for the sport that I was involved in. And, and there was really strong buy-in already to, we need this program, we need these rules in place, um, we need, you know certain provisions uh, you know like mobile phones not being permitted on uh, around matches at world cups and so forth and um, integrity officers being in place that that was already that was seen even though we hadn't had um, the kind of threats that other sports had had that was seen as being something that's worth doing worth investing in um, and then sort of taking that through to tennis is sort of almost the next level because you know tennis's commitment in this area is is well known is long-standing and um, you know, a lot of what I was doing in rugby was, um, you know, implementing really maybe a scaled version of what tennis had been doing for some time. So in some ways, from, from you know, speaking just for myself, it was a really natural career progression to move from rugby to tennis because actually tennis in a lot of ways was at the forefront of this area, um, you know, for a really long time. And does it, does it present any challenges or is this a different set of challenges, but does it present any new challenges going from a team sport where you've got a lot of little cohorts, um, you know, probably you know, individually there's probably less contact points um, that you have to deal with. Where in tennis, the the global reach of it and the disparate nature of the different competitions and uh, regions is does that create a, you know a new set of challenges or is it just a, a scale issue? Yeah, it, it's it, yeah, it is different in certain respects because um, one of the things with a team sport is you generally have the players in a team environment and so you have a pretty good level of understanding of who's around them where they are how to access them how to arrange education um, you can do groups on mass at tournaments and so forth like before rugby world cups we would have sort of a road show like in japan in 2019 a road show almost going around the country um, making sure we gave the in-person education to supplement the online education and you could sort of do that in 20 sessions over two or three days with a with a with a team of integrity officers. Tennis is a little bit more difficult in that sense, in that it's completely global. Um, there's matches on every day of the year in almost every country in the world. It's just a huge international sport. So, and that's why I guess we've got a 
a dedicated education team who who work with their network to make sure we can get to all of these players, just specifically speaking about education for a moment, wherever they are, um, in whatever language they speak, and trying to find the best touch points for them. Um, so that's, I guess, more challenging because you're dealing with a sport that just is, by its nature, bigger with more professional players and more countries involved and, and players you know, travelling in, in different ways and, and, and different times and not necessarily always being together like they would be if they were in a team. And also, I presume as well, the well-known problems with financial distribution or wealth distribution within tennis, creating a unique set of circumstances in the sport so many people want to participate in, but to break into that top flight can be uh, financially um, perilous, it seems at times, uh, or at least stressful and therefore can leave people, you know, in some of the biggest cases that we've seen over the years, there's that vulnerability of, of people who are, you know, you know, swayed even, you know, because of those sort of pressures. Um, in terms of, you know, given that backdrop, and I know that Tennessee is trying to work hard to address that in different ways. Um, how, how many um, sort of, you know, cases are you sort of um, either monitoring or um, actually having to prosecute on a on a on a regular basis. I know we get the and we republish the news updates, and it seems like there's quite a few of them. <laughs> yeah, you you are right. There are there are quite a few cases, but I think the the one thing that I always keep in mind is the number of matches played in tennis is astronomically higher than pretty much any sport. I mean that's so. So you've got to take that into account in terms of yes, that we are compared to rugby. Say we we didn't have many cases in rugby, thankfully, um, but the number of professional rugby matches being gambled, you know, which are available for gambling on an annual basis, would be I'd hate to hazard a guess, but it would be minuscule compared to the number of tennis matches. There would probably be more tennis matches in a week that you can gamble on. I would suspect around the world than there might be in a whole season of rugby, um, and that's so that is a reality of of our sport. And do you, do you think that's a problem in that? From an integrity perspective, someone like yourself who, you know, I'm slightly biased because we've had conversations in the past and, you know, um, so I know what you sort of stand for and, you know, what drives you. In the, and I don't even like calling it the integrity space anyway, for because <laughs> whatever that means, but, um, but for someone like yourself who works in a sport who's trying to reduce corruption, trying to uh, educate, make people aware, do you find it slightly frustrating, even going back to your rugby days, where there was this dissemination of, of figures, let's say, out of context? So, so the example I'd give is Welsh rugby, who did a fantastic job of actually looking into steroid use and um, uh, domestically. And rather than, you know, inevitably, it then led to cases being brought forward. And rather than people say, great, it's great that you're addressing this, they were kind of, the, the, some of the narrative was that, you know, world so Welsh rugby is in disarray, and it was the polar opposite of that. They're actually doing something a bit like with the safeguarding. You know, actually like moving forward on safeguarding rather than say, "Great, we're doing something proactively." It can be framed as, "Oh, you're the ones with the problem." Whereas the truth may be there may be many other sports that have got far more serious issues that you just never hear about. Is that something that 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 I guess one is it something that that that, that either bothers you or something that you're cognizant of, and then if so what would you like to see it done to address that? Yeah, to be honest, it doesn't really bother me at all. Uh, the way I would sort of see it is if... if well, that's, you, that's a rubbish question then. We'll edit this no, one out. No, 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 no. It's a, no it's, I mean, it's a good question, but it doesn't bother me in the sense that, I mean, it makes me proud actually to work for a sport that is happy to lift up all the stones and find out what's underneath and try and get education in at the right levels and earlier and younger and, you know, in the countries that might need it or the players who might need it, etc. Um, you know, if I think, and I think people, sort of reasonable people, taking a step back, who really understand um, sport and the way um, you know doping or corruption can affect a sport, will we'll be able to sort of understand. If you're not looking for it, you won't find it. So, working in a sport that's happy to go looking for it and wants to ensure that the integrity of the sport and the brand of the sport is protected, and the athletes who play in the sport are protected from these external influences, is actually a really good thing, and makes me you know think. You know, I'm, I'm glad to be working in, in this sport, much like I was in, in rugby, because rugby was the same. It was happy to actually say, we don't really have an integrity program as of 2010. We want you to put one in place. And we did. And we did sanction a few people, not as many as in tennis, but then different styles of sport. And it was happy to go and do that. And you know, including, you, you mentioned the Welsh um, example, including in the last World Cup, we had the Wales assistant coach 
sent home before the before the tournament for gambling offences. Not really ideal timing for a major event, but that was the sport saying this is what we stand for and this is this is not acceptable conduct and, and we're going to deal with it properly. Yeah, I think that to be fair to rugby and particularly Welsh rugby, I think they dealt with that really well given that, you know, both in terms of their performances on the pitch, but also off the pitch and how they dealt with it very thoroughly and, and transparently. Um, yeah, that's a really good case study, actually, in terms of, again, just being honest <laughs> about what's going on. Um, in terms of, there's two things, I've got so many questions for you. First of all, when you're qualifying as a lawyer, obviously you worked at uh, an international law firm with a very good reputation. Um, and you're involved, I could see that you're involved in sort of global transactions and, and things like that. How did you, because it's not like typically in, in prior practice you were doing, there was, back then there were integrity sport roles, right? specifically like there are now there are teams of people who work on this. How did you transition into sport from then? And was it an easy transition or did you, uh, yeah, what did you do? And did you think you were going to go into an integrity type role? It's a really good question. Um, get asked it quite a lot, and I'm always happy I get get asked it sometimes by you know people who, who join me on LinkedIn or whatever it might be and, and ask that question who are probably on the same trajectory at some point in their career. Um, so I grew up in Australia, as um, most people probably be able to pick from from the accent. Um, sports mad as most Australian um, kids are, and uh, had wanted to work in sport, but also um, you know really interested in the law and justice and so forth, and sort of that led me into a career in the law and the long, kind of longer term goal I guess but you never quite know when you're at you know that sort of early 20s late teens periods embarking out on a on a law degree quite how it's all going to fit together because um, it's all ahead of you but I had hoped to be able to find a way to combine the two um, so I, I did a degree in law and a degree in international studies majored in Spanish um, had thought Spanish as well as just being really interested in, in Spanish-speaking countries had thought Spanish might be a useful language to make uh, its way into sport i mean even in the um in the australian football um football league they had spanish-speaking players south american players in clubs and i thought if i end up you know working in a club or you know or in a league it might be useful to have that language which particularly in the australian context not that many people would would necessarily speak so i thought that might be useful but also um you know open open some doors to to other sports like tennis like rugby where where spanish is an important language as well um, so uh, kind of at that stage, I was really sort of kind of testing how is this going to work, um, did an associateship with the Supreme Court judge back in Australia for a year and then uh, came overseas and worked for DLA Piper for a couple of years, litigation, arbitration, insurance stuff, not specifically in sport, um, but a kind of, a, I guess, a, a, a good firm with a good reputation that I'd hoped might lead its way into, um, into a sports role eventually. Um, and then having knocked on lots of doors and, and made lots of inquiries, decided I'm going to have to do something um, to just force that way into sport, um, just having a good firm and a, and a, and a, and a you know, university degree and so forth is not, is not going to quite be enough to put you ahead of the pack. So I went and did an MBA in sports business in Madrid um, and, uh, again, spent a lot of that making contacts and networking and so forth, like lots of the people who reach out to me are doing at the same time. Um, and then a role came up with uh, what was the International Rugby Board um, within about a month of finishing that, and uh, uh, that sort of just worked out. And um, and and I, and I moved moved to Dublin, having been there for one weekend previously, and then lived there for eleven years, and became a citizen, and uh, and and made my career there. And and um, from what was when I joined a pretty small legal team, particularly for a, a relatively big international federation, there were there were just three of us, head of legal. And then two councils. So when I started, particularly, I had, pre I was I was always more on the regulatory side, having come from that litigation background. So I was always doing anti-doping cases and regulatory cases, um, but had a reasonably broad exposure with you know some event hosting contracts and participation agreements and a little bit of sponsorship stuff and so forth. But the regulatory path was um, was really where I was sort of heading, and then the integrity piece um, kind of came onto our radar around maybe around 2011 and we started to think we should probably be speaking to some other sports and that's when the, the kind of best practice tour if you want to call it that um came into being and i, and I met with sports like the tennis integrity unit and uh and british horse racing and um, australian football league and others who'd had um you know experience in the with anti-corruption and with, with betting issues and, and and it sort of escalated from there 
That's awesome. I love it. And it, can you make it, the end part of it sounds really simple, right? But it's all the hard work that goes into, you know, oh, and a roll came up, I took it and I, and I did well. But it's the, it's the, you know, the hard work that is like being in sport. It's all the effort, the, the training that you do to be able to perform well when the opportunity arises. Um, it's a great story. Yeah. The, the, and the, the thing I say to any kind of young lawyer who reaches out to me on LinkedIn or whatever it is, is, you know, there's so many people who could do these jobs. Um, but the, you know, or who could at least learn to do them within a period of time. Um, but the thing when it's so competitive with some of these sports jobs, and we, you know, we might get a hundred people. I know in world rugby it's similar. Might get a hundred people applying for uh, any particular opening. Is how do you? What do you have that makes you stand out? Do you have an extra language? Do you have, um, you know, a masters, or have you done some voluntary work somewhere, or have you done, you know, something or other that. Um, that just fills that gap. If you haven't come from, you haven't been lucky enough to fall straight into working for a professional sports organization or a, an IF or an NF or whatever more, or a marketing agency, whatever it might be. If, if you're coming from, say, a firm where you've been doing, you know, general private practice work, how what do you have? How, what can you do extra that would just put you ahead of everyone else and show not, not just that you have the skills, because a lot of people who apply for these jobs have the skills, um, but that you've got that real passion and drive. You've done something extra, something over the top that makes you stand out. Um, and I think that probably for me was was going off and doing the MBA. It was really interesting. It was linked to Real Madrid. So there was a lot of access um, to the sports industry that I hadn't necessarily had um, uh, previously. I had done some voluntary work um, in the commercial team at my local professional uh, football club back in Australia um, but really that the MBA probably um, gave me a lot of it, sort of holistic insight into the business not just the legal side there were modules on marketing and um, you know governance and so forth and commercial and how that all sort of fits together. And do you think that for me when we look at CVs obviously from when we're recruiting for sports organisations or law firms but also when we're hiring ourselves even on the mentoring scheme, right, is, is the fact that you need something to help you whittle down. Like, as you say, there's a lot of people with very similar, at least on paper, have very similar skill sets, and you want some indication of, as you're saying, that it, it could, there's something that says, hmm, this person's interested, I'd love to speak to them. Or they can, you know, you can see that they're, they're more committed, right, that they've got, you know, some genuine interest. And you know, I can see you're nodding, just in case people are listening. Um, yeah, that's one of the things I always think about that also gets overlooked. That we had, you know, for our mentoring scheme, we had like hundreds of applications, and you know, it was really hard to, to try and we spent a lot of time trying to score up the CVs, you know, do it all very fairly. So difficult. And I think you feel terrible with the people that, that don't get to go through, but you can't take 100 people through for a job, so you've, you've got to whistle it down to the people who are who stand out above the others. And 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 for people who are in that situation, it's really how, how do you make yourself stand out? That's that's kind of what I. When I was working for DLA, I thought, how can I, what can I do to, to get me these sports jobs? You know, what, what am I going to, what am I going to get? Because lots of people applying from good firms, there are, um, but that's not necessarily just enough given the competition. And what would you say um, you look for? I'm always really curious. Uh, what do you look for in colleagues? Because again, I think there's a lot of bad career advice that's given and people try to anchor to a, to a, something they've read from someone who's never done it themselves i always think it's great to hear from people like yourself who can say this is what i i value in colleagues what is it that you value when you're hiring people given that you've been recently hiring yeah um i think the the first thing because you presume if someone has certainly if they've gotten through the first cut which will usually be done by hr or by you know an external hr provider they've, they've at least got the basic academics and probably some career experience which is relevant so I think what you're looking for then is, um, are they a team player? Are they really committed to this? You know, have they shown a commitment? Is there anything in their CV that shows this is really what they want to do, or it's not just happens to be a job available at the time and they're sort of interested in it broadly, but you know they could also happily pursue something else, or are they really, you know, focused on this? Because certainly in the sports industry, there will be people applying who are very clearly very passionate about the roles. And those people are going to, you can see that usually on their CV and you can see that uh, certainly when you meet them that, that this is really what they want to do and they've sort of gone all in for it um, you know, in, in whatever way it might be, through voluntary work or through experience. Just just to expand on that, and is that because you, because we've gone through this process ourselves, is because you want people who are really committed to delivering a certain standard and quality of work. That's the kind of, is that is that why you're saying that? Because I think, again, what you, what you, the, some people listening to this may just think, oh, you just need passion. But it's not passion. It's, as you're saying, it's the skill set. 
and the enthusiasm for the role. Ex ex no, you're, you're exactly right. So I'm really talking about when you've got, say, a small pool of candidates, all of whom you would say on paper, academically, um, intellectually, could do the role. What sets the one or two people apart who go through to the final stage or the people who eventually get the job? It's probably something that shows, I really want this. I can do it. I'm going to stick with it. I'm, you know, first of all, going to be a team player, but I think by that stage, that's probably a given. You've probably hopefully worked out that this is a person who has worked in teams before and they can get on with people. Um, but you want someone who I think has that drive. They've shown, I'm willing to do this. I'm keen on it. I know it's, at times probably be hard. You might have to work late hours. You might have to make sacrifices. In some cases, you might have to, um, you know, move to another country to live to do the job. You know, if you're, you know, people apply a lot in sport for jobs internationally, like I did, or even in rugby, we used to have to spend quite a lot of time sometimes extended periods of time away from home. You know, World Cups in rugby go for seven weeks. You'd have to be there a couple of weeks before and probably a week at the end. So are, are you able to make that commitment? Um, and that's, I think, what, what would stand someone out, when, uh, you know, for me when I'm, when I'm looking through a, a, a group of people with, with really good credentials and good, good, good academics and good career history. Well, is there one person who really wants it and, and then they can show that through, through evidence? Yes, yeah, I think it's great how you explain that you kind of do see it it's a great way to you know are you really how committed are you and you can kind of yeah because from an employer's perspective whilst you find you want people to go through the career ladder and journey what you don't want to do is best all that time training someone up and they leave just because they were using it as a, as a cv builder in itself rather than being committed to delivering the role it's a really good point particularly for an organization like ours where we have a relatively small and particularly new legal team you know it's really important with only four people you, you can't really take one person on who might leave in a year or two's time because it's just so destabilizing for such a small group. Might be different if you're in a, a bigger sports organization with, you know, multiple legal teams, you know, a commercial team, regulatory team, et cetera. Maybe it's not such a such an impact. But certainly in a in a small and pretty nascent team like ours, uh, that was important. We need people who are going to stick with it because we want to try to build this. And then it's maybe later on it's easier for people to leave and be inserted. But whilst you're trying really in our case establishing um, you know internal procedures and how things are going to work and 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 while, while also in, ensuring the ship sails smoothly and and uh, uh, you know there's there's no in, no business interruption whilst we're setting up this internal legal team it's really helpful to have people who are going to stick with that course and on that point then how are you um, you know given that there, there is so much movement in this space whether it's the IPAC stuff whether it's as you say it's the IOC driving it or the UNODC there's all this you know, movement in the space, um, in, in the broader integrity space, the anti-corruption, the match fixing, corruption from the corruption side, the betting focused corruption, the anti-doping and safeguarding, etc. How are you uh, spending your time and focusing your attention as you're building the team? What, how are you making sure you're consuming the right information and that you're focusing the team? Because no doubt you've got to You've got the stuff you have to do, the real, the ongoing cases, but also you'll be future gazing sort of three years, you know, where you're going to get to five years, where you're going to get to. How are you managing that? And what what areas are you, um, from a personal perspective, if, if not, you know, from a personal and work perspective, a, a sort of you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, really good question. And there's a lot of that going on, actually, because as you say, we've got a day-to-day a, a -day caseload, um, but there's also this sort of quite imminent looking forward piece in terms of integrating the anti-doping program. Um, so there's quite a lot of that going on at the moment. Um, it's actually you know happening right as we speak in terms of the, the, what's, the, what's called the TADP, the Tennis Anti-Doping Program, coming over. We recently just had Nicole Sapstead join, uh, who was CEO of UKAD, um, join us as our new head of anti-doping, which, which is a great hire. Uh, she joined us at the start of this month. Um, so there's a lot of that looking forward actually happening right as we speak in quite imminent looking forward though as in integrating effectively another half of the business into the business but also specifically into the legal team um, but at the same time managing cases that are that are, that are ongoing we've got um, you know cases at CAS and, and cases before our own um, our own hearing body uh, that, that we're managing in a, in, a, in a pretty smooth way uh, with assistance from external counsel as well of course um, in appropriate cases and and so that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis, but we're also, and I think the key is just kind of that diary management piece, making sure that there's time in the diary for the looking forward as well, because it's really easy to get dragged into the day-to-day -day cases. And, and, I'm, and I'm lucky because um, I've got a great team. We're a pretty small team, but great team, and they are able to, to make sure that that day-to-day -day ship keeps sailing, which allows me that little bit of bandwidth um, to work with you know, Nicole and, and Johnny Gray and Nigel Willerton and others within the team. Um, 
to, to make sure that we're, we're ready to go for 2022 on the, on the anti-doping side. And then also kind of looking even further forward than that, how do we find even more synergies between these two programs? Um, and that's probably the next piece, which, which is you know, coming down the line after we, um, after we integrate the TADP. And is that kind of one of the criticisms that, that has been, uh, by the way, I, I like Nicole. Um, <laughs> so it's great. Uh, so the wish to congratulations on that. She was, yeah, but at UCAD, she was always very um, transparent uh, and honest and open to conversations and something I've always really appreciated just from anyone in, in sport generally when they're willing to have that, like yourself, when people are willing to have dialogue, even if you don't agree, it's just so beneficial because, you know, particularly for me, I'm privately quite opinionated, probably people would argue quite publicly opinionated, try not to be, but, you know, I always find that, you know, I'm opinionated on stuff I don't know too much about, <laughs> I think I do, and then I speak to people who really know and then they quite uh, politely normally correct me and, and give me new insights and Nicole's definitely one of those people who is, um, you know, when she was at UCAD, for example, I was ready. I was. I told her this story. I was ready to to um, <laughs> to go guns blazing on safeguarding anti doping at a conference she was speaking at in Wales, and I hadn't spoke to her. I was just ready to ask this question. And I'd like. I was like, no one's looking at this issue. And she gets up and says, look, one area that I think we could do better on is safeguarding anti doping. And I was like, that is fantastic. <laughs> we have to. <laughs> she beat me to the punch, but it was great, right? It's in there was some some look there. But one of the criticism um, that that legal has often received in sport. But yeah, which I think is sometimes a fair criticism, is that from a policy perspective, that a lot of the people involved in sort of international relations and the policy side have have said to me privately, they just wish that legal would be more involved in um, being involved in the conversations early on, rather than waiting for regulations to, to basically come out and then interpret them and then challenge them from 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 the usual sort of uh, dispute resolution side of things how how much it sounds to me like and is that right that in your role you're there is that that sort of with nicole coming in as well there that sort of merger between the policy and the legal side absolutely yeah we work really closely together um so we have uh, kind of in terms of our, our governance just maybe to to just explain it a little bit more so we've got a, a majority independent board on which there are also um representatives of the tennis um the tennis stakeholders uh, underneath that sits a rules committee who interpret that's on the TACP side there's a there's a equivalent infrastructure under the TADP with with different personnel with different expertise and so forth but just speaking about the TACP because that's what I've been mostly involved with um, obviously this year <laughs> do you know I'm dyslexic by the way this is not helping me at, at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it gets even more complicated in the sense that the TA and this is just historically how tennis has been structured uh, the TACP is um under Florida law, where where the two tours are based, uh, ATP and WTA, and uses American spelling, uh, the anti-doping program, which was uh, until well, it, uh, the ITF is the wider signatory, and, and until next year was also the the body delivering it. They're obviously based in London, so that's under English law uh, and uses English spelling. So um, that it doesn't it doesn't get any easier in that respect. But um, but but des- but despite that, there's there's you know, real synergy between the way the programs operate um, and the infrastructure, but then the governance below it is 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 pretty mirrored across the two. And legal is really heavily um, integrated with that. So so I attend our board meetings, I attend our rules committee meetings, um, and so I'm involved really early actually in terms of policy. So if if there is a uh, you know a change in relation to some policy matter that might um, lead to a change in a in a rule or in, in a way that, that things are interpreted i'm i'm knowing about that at the very start you know so that's that's not always the case for in-house counsel i know it's a real gripe of in-house counsel not just in sport but across um across all areas of commerce is not necessarily being um in you know being maybe the last to know it's kind of the the classic gripe of in-house counsel but i'm in the really fortunate position where that that just isn't the case um for us we are like really heavily involved from the start and also you know thankfully all those tennis is kind of unique with seven different governing bodies governing their their different events the four grand slams and the two tours and then all of the rtf events um they're all really integrated as well with us so we um we tend to know what they're doing albeit um it, it you know, we, our, our, our remit is specifically anti-doping and anti-corruption, so we're not necessarily involved in you know, their broadcast conversations, or, but we have a really good dialogue with them as well. So even though they, we are a fully independent organisation, we still have a really good relationship uh, in the sense that we're aware of what's happening in the sport. 
um, and uh, you know and that helps it helps us run despite the fact the sport has these seven governing bodies a pretty seamless operation in terms of the TACP and shortly the TADP across all of these different events and, and also players moving between events. You have players who play in ITF events who then go and play on the tours, may then play in Grand Slams as well, depending on their level and, and, and we sort of we bring all of that together. But that's really courtesy of, of a very seamless and integrated um, stakeholder uh, stakeholder group in, in this area. So it's kind of, yeah, the needs you know, have, have driven it, that you need to have that collaboration. They, yeah, and there's real alignment, which is really helpful. So we've got a great board, great rules committee with with tennis um, input as well as uh, independent members on there, and and it actually works really really well. And legal's right there at the at the coalface at the at the start of any project, um, and also then at the end, which is you know, it's the great joy of working in house. You can be there at the start of the project, and then you're there at the very end, including you know in our case, it often leads to litigation cases, etc. And and we're there for that too. So Joe, you, I think maybe we should write an instructional book is if, if you're going to build an in-house team, this is the basic approach that you should take because it doesn't matter, say, for example, we're speaking to, say, Carrie at Mercedes Formula One about them integrating within the business and uh, or, you know, you know, pick, you know, it doesn't matter, pick, pick an organisation who's doing very well. All of the conversations, whether it's in sport, outside of sport, is that you know, the more the in-house team can be the part of the wider function rather than a separate unit that's kind of consulted on, it does seem to be the absolute best approach. And I'm always surprised that, I guess, but it's just human, you know, human uh, resources issues, that, they, that this isn't just standard now, just across the board. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. And it's, and it's trying to ensure that the business, and not just not just RTA, but the business, just speaking broadly, you know, understands that legal can add value and are not just a support service. You know, legal actually being involved early can help save, you know, can help save save money if you're in a in a uh, you know speaking purely in economic terms because a business might be setting off on a path that is not quite going to work legally and it's going to have to be adjusted later. You bring legal in earlier, can help you with that strategic planning piece and really add value early. So. That's always the message in house lawyers try to give um, you know C suite colleagues. It doesn't always um, doesn't always happen, but but it's definitely from the legal perspective. I think the best yeah best approach. But that's even the case. You know, if you look at world sports, even the case of you know as long as it's money well spent in the regards that you're being very focused with the type of advice you need, you could argue the 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 case that if you're using the right external providers as well, and it's often the gripe that we have as law in sport is that sometimes lawyers get a bad rep for being expensive and they are absolutely at times. But if you take it into the wider context of delivering a project, delivering, you know, better rules or long term for a long term investment perspective, it is often, you know, more than justified and actually a good use of money. But what happens is in the interim period, they try to, I always say, joke around people. People go often in sport, they think, uh, not not all sports, obviously, it depends where they're at in evolution, but often one of the things I can see where people aren't sophisticated purchase of legal services, which is a lot of people, um, obviously, um, and they haven't used lawyers before, is that they ask the question, they go, what can I do to not use a lawyer? <laughs> and then they go, maybe I do need a lawyer, but let me go again. And then, Maybe I can still not use a lawyer, and particularly for athletes, you see this, where they get themselves in pickles in disciplinary cases because they haven't managed, and half of that is the issue of not being able to know who to go to. Um, they haven't managed to find the right advisor, and they spend loads of money on people who just can't really help them, and then they find the right advisor and think, oh, if only I'd come to you earlier. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> seems to be a broader it, it problem. Makes it, early engagement is the key. I mean, particularly in-house, speaking for myself, but I think external lawyers would probably say the same thing. Um, and, and there's obviously a, a cost difference there. It's one of the reasons I think that the ITAA um, board decided to go down this path of setting up its own in-house legal team because it wanted um, this kind of input and, and not just in terms of cost saving in respect of the way that we can manage cases um, with, with the right in-house external mix, um, but also having, you know, given particularly the, the, the nature of the topic that, the topics that we'll be dealing with, anti-corruption but, but soon anti-doping, you know, they're inherently legal. Um, so having an in-house legal team and being able to have legal engagement with the board and with the rules committee when they're making policies is um, is something that the ITA wanted and and, uh, and I think is working well. Yeah, and it's very much indicative of what we're seeing, you know, change in, in sport over the last 10 years is that you are seeing that the more forward-thinking organisations are now recognising that and seeing the value, which is a, definitely a great trend 
that we're seeing because you know they're underpinning all of this is that sport should function better people's rights should be protected their welfare should be protected and it creates you know, the stuff you were saying that, that motivated you when you're at world rugby and now with tennis it's you know underpinning it if you want a well-run sport you're at some point if you're a certain scale you're going to need your own in-house team from um sort of wrapping up in terms because i know you've got to go soon but what would you say has been the most either fulfilling project you've been involved with or the most you know and you could have both or the most interesting sort of case it may be one and the same but what would you say is you know or a better way to phrase it would be well, i guess what's the highlight would you say so far of your career in terms of you know, either impact or stuff that's given you a lot of joy yeah, a really good question. Um, I'm still relatively new in tennis, so I might end up going back to rugby for this, but but it probably plays through in the sense that of of having this opportunity in tennis to set up this legal team um, is you know is like professionally probably the the the, the, the sort of the, the highlight and, and being seen and being recognised I guess for what rugby had done and and my role in that was um, is, is probably a highlight, but. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, due to the lockdown and so forth, I haven't had the opportunity to actually work at any of the tennis events yet. So, um, you know, and sports about events. So if I if I go back um, into my rugby days, I would probably say working at some of the events, um, particularly the ones where, so from 2015 onwards, where we had a fully-fledged integrity program um, with an integrity officer team, some really, really respected individuals, um, in a number of cases, effectively seconded from from other sports bodies with with experience in the area and people with the right language mix for our our player populace and so forth. So having those teams in in England for that men's 2015 World Cup and the the, the 2019 one in Japan, we had similar models for our, you know, women's World Cups and other other um, events. But those two are, are kind of the, the the biggest two events, um, and and you know will always be, you know, really special having having been there as a staff member on the you know effectively on the side of the pitch at, at some of those games um, will always stand out. But I'm really looking forward to having that opportunity once uh, you know travel resumes imminently to to have similar kind of experiences in tennis. That's gonna be awesome. And yeah, it's funny you said I was, I was wondering what you're gonna say in you know the heart of this. You know, I think most yeah the reason why most people who work in sport work in sport is because. Um, you know, making the actual sport run and and the and the competitions run is the most fulfilling thing. I, um, Eddie Hearn, uh, not Eddie Hearn, sorry, Barry Hearn got an award at the Sports Industry Awards, and he basically said, you know, the thing that he was thankful for was, you know, he said, um, yeah, we help athletes perform. And he said, to be honest with you, it's quite a selfish thing because I find sports so entertaining and enjoyable. I just really appreciate this, watching them, you know, perform skillfully, their art. And I thought that was a lovely way to phrase it. And it kind of sort of echoes a little bit what you're saying. Yeah, that's what we're all here for, really. Like in the integrity space, whether it be anti-doping, anti-corruption, at its very heart, it's athlete welfare. You know, they're athlete welfare issues. I mean, particularly the education side of it, you get in early enough with athletes who, you know, at some point in their career might have some vulnerability, whether it be doping or corruption or whatever it might be, get in early enough, you actually make a difference in that person's life, which is what sport's all about, right? So yeah, really, really satisfying. And as well as, you know, um, seeing them perform at the highest level and, you know, in, in spectacular events and and do, do incredible things on, on courts and fields, amazing. Well, on that note, I think that's a great way to end, a really positive way to end. And Ben, um, I know you're just in the middle of a move <laughs> as well. So wish you all the success in that and with the role. And as I said, the one thing that, that you know, having known you as a contact, I guess, on LinkedIn and, and through the sector, the one thing that, 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 that I love to see is collaboration and, and we love as law and sport to see is collaboration. And I, I, I really enjoyed and I hope you start doing more of that type of stuff in your current role, I hope you're given the space to do that, but the stuff you did with World Rugby in London, bringing everyone together um, is that type of initiative that I think we need to see, a you know, proactive initiative. I know it wasn't easy as well, so hopefully you can continue that type of activity um, in your current role. It's something that, so thanks for organising that. As I said, I think it was something that was appreciated by the community as well. I know it's one of those things, right, having put on events, I know how much hard work it is, <laughs> and it wasn't easy, I'm sure, right, to do with all the politics and the speakers and logistics and everything. But again, you had cricket there. I think it was you had cricket, um, Nevada, I think there was people from Nevada, the tennis, the tennis integrity unit. There was a, 
yeah and it was great it was really was great so well done for that and again that's the sort of stuff that people don't get recognition for but i think that sort of you know bringing people together you know to have those kind of conversations been valuable so thank you for that i really enjoyed it i must admit Absolutely, we, we all benefit from those. I'm a huge believer in anyone who's 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 met me around the, the sort of sports circles or ever heard me speak. Um, will will have probably have heard me reference that best practice sort of tour that I was mentioning with other sports and and learning best practice from them. Um, and one of them was tennis that I, that I went to, um, who had always been at the forefront of this area. And I think we all learn in sport, um, particularly in this regulatory area, from sharing. Uh, it's one of those areas where. Um, actually, the, the 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 sum is greater than its parts, and and the sports industry as a whole um, can really work together to, to in these integrity areas because none of us benefit from a competitive sport having a big scandal actually in the long term because those actually taint sport as a whole those scandals even if it doesn't affect your particular sport. So I think the more sports are willing to work with each other and help each other, I actually think it's hugely beneficial. It's thinking about the we rather than the me, right, in that regards. And I think, um, you know, thinking in that global context, again, when you do that, I've certainly found it with people like yourself and others who have been so helpful over the years with providing guidance or putting us in the right direction as well. That, you know, if you're listening and you're working in this space or if you're interested in working in this space, do reach out to people. You'll be surprised um, how receptive people are. Um, and you know, Ben, I don't want to flood, get your emails flooded, but <laughs> Ben being one of them. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out. I wish you all the success, um, you know, building the legal team and the capacity and look forward to seeing and keep us updated as well on the integration. I think that is, I think it's going to be a great test case almost for that. Um, you know, if you're you know, planning ahead, if you could think about you know, how you could you know share that experience with others is going to be quite a useful exercise because I think there's been probably many sports organisations trying to grapple with the same issue. Um, maybe we'll get you back to on on yeah get you back on the as we always try to do get you speaking at our conferences and events on it. And now you're in London, it'd be slightly slightly easier. Um, so yeah, thanks again. No, my pleasure, and th thanks so much for having me on.